The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Today's solutionist thinker is the original disruptor. He was kicked out of school, well, narrowly avoided being kicked out of school, but he left voluntarily moments before the headmaster at Durban High School actually booted him out. He knew when he'd lost the fight. He's not big on team sports. He played rugby for years and still doesn't understand the rules. His name is John Flismus. He's the ultimate outside insider. I was thinking about it the other day. I've been doing corporate gigs for 25 years. It's a long time. So on one hand, I'm like this toothless circus lion. And on the other hand, you know, I like to tear someone's liver out while they're sitting in the front row. I'm Bruce Whitfield and you are listening to Solutionist Thinking, brought to you by RMB. What is humor, John Flismus? As I get older, I realize I'm less sure of what humor really is. Uh, I believe, though, it's, um, it's a connector. If I'm really honest, I don't think it's supposed to. It doesn't just only amuse. I think it just gives us a sense of connection, which is where the laughter really comes from. Humor doesn't have to be funny. Commercially, yes, I think it does. But on a deep level, um, I don't think people just laugh because they are uh, amused. I think they laugh because they're relieved. I think they laugh because they recognize something. I think they laugh because they are um, congratulating themselves that whatever's being described is not happening to them. So uh, it's a little more, uh, it becomes a little more esoteric as I get older. It's, it's not about the sort of, you know, willy joke or the, the obvious low-hanging fruit. There's a deeper thing. If I think of some of my heroes like Peter Dirk Ace, uh, humor can be so much more useful than just making you laugh. When can humor be uncomfortable? I think it should always be uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> all the stuff that I love. Uh, because it allows us to speak truth to power. Whether it's our own power or whether it's the powers that be or whatever it might be. But uh, humor is a great envelope for very difficult conversations. But not everybody sees humor in the same way. Um, uh, there is a strong risk of yourself getting punched in the mouth. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've had some death threats and I've had some very unhappy people and I've had some BCCSA hearings and I've been found guilty of hate speech, I think, um, unfairly. But anyhow, um, so, yep, there can be some collateral damage. But but I, I'm often reassured that the people damaged uh, by humor are, are stupid or bigoted. And so um, it's, I'm OK with that. Uh, because often uh, people who are offended, uh, all we've done is we've offended a, an aspect of their bigotry or their conservatism. And I have no time for either of those things. How important was getting expelled from school in shaping you? Or um, being near expelled? Right. Well, well let's call it expelled. I Because um, if I hadn't left, I would have been. Um, I um, So I come from a dad who grew up as an outsider. He, he was always a hustler. He always made his own way. Him and my mum were hardworking entrepreneurs. When I was born, uh, they had nothing. Of course, I mean nothing in a relative sense as privileged white people, obviously several rungs um, ahead of other people who had nothing. But um, they worked quite hard and they, and they built everything they had. And my dad always taught me not to rely on societies, clubs, um, membership things or networks, old boys clubs. He was never one of those dudes. And, and so um, I started off like that. When I got expelled, it just reaffirmed um, that. And, and I have to say, when that happened to me, he actually backed me which I found to be an incredible act. Um, I think some people might see it as bad parenting, but he backed me at a time when I think he, was, he understood where I was going, and that was a huge lesson for me. It's quite a lonely thing, though, isn't it, being the outsider? Uh, y- yes, uh, it can be, but it also becomes quite a comforting 
workplace isolation. And I can even tell you about this stuff because I'm studying it now in Ericsson's life stages. I believe that I went through a, what they call the crisis of competence, which is where you value yourself. And remember, being uh, coming from the family I did, people say being raised by wolves is difficult, but you must try being raised by wasps. Um, um, <laughs> far more treacherous and cutthroat, and their value system is very dangerous. So um, I try to value myself on a, on a fairly conventional system, and that didn't work. So, so I had this crisis of competence. And actually, that cascades into a second crisis later on. It's the crisis where you choose isolation over intimacy. And I believe that's what for, like, put me into the stand-up comedy trajectory was this decision to be comfortable in isolation. And all the people I made friends with in high school to this day, they were all outcasts from the sort of waspy group. They were sort of the, the gay dude, the guy that was crippled, the, you know, all just fringe people who weren't really popular with the first team rugby club who I'm very glad to say very few went on to do anything remarkable with their lives they're just sort of middling 40 to 50 year old just schlubs and they just still talk about their glory days when they chased a piece of leather around a field to give each other spinal injuries and and yet my sort of outsider weirdo friends generally have done quite well yet as the outsider you put yourself back in the center right in the center right in the center Mm. is it attention seeking or a means to an end it's a good question. I think the aspects of both. I think, uh, yes, as comics, if, you, if your job requires that, you know, several hundred people stare at you and you're in a spotlight, you've got to admit to some psychopathology. I, I mean, I reckon there's got to be some narcissism. And perhaps it's payback for myself for the years of isolation. There's definitely a, we all, we all correct, you know, we try and correct. So there's an aspect of that. But I've always said that fame for me is like a byproduct. And also in South Africa, I don't know what fame really means. It's a very small concept. But um, but being well known is a byproduct of what I really love, which is a microphone and some strangers. Like I really find that to be a very therapeutic thing. For so many people, the most daunting aspect of their lives is to stand up in front of a room full of people. They can't stand to be judged. They can't stand to be criticized. They can't stand to be second guessed. Right. But that's exactly what you do every single day of your life. Uh, you know, and I was uh, diagnosed at quite a young age as having quite severe performance anxiety. <laughs> so I'm not sure how that stacks up, but uh, I know the paradoxes seem to be recurring in life. Um, so yes, a lot of people are terrified of it, and I'm very grateful for that because it means that there's a scarcity of us, which means we can price ourselves quite well. But um, I've never really answered that kind of paradox. I'm not quite sure how that happens because I'm actually by nature an introvert. People who know me well will know that I'm actually an introvert. So whether it's a mask or a, or a shield against those feelings, I don't know. But, um, you know, but that's a paradox that exists. Do you need to be liked? I can honestly say that I used to crave being liked, and now I genuinely don't care. How do you get to a stage where you don't care, especially when your livelihood depends on people relating to you at least? So the paradox there is the more I let go of what people think of me, the more people can identify and enjoy what I do because everybody wants to not care about being liked. So now I become a sort of a torchbearer for everyone who wants to not not care about being liked. It just came at a point where I realized the comedy was more important than the approval, if that makes sense. The work that I want to do, so along the lines of Peter Dirk Ace, my important work, so like my, my last show about racism, is not a commercially popular idea. It was commercially popular for me, but that's because I had to take it on the thing of, I don't care how you react in the first five, ten minutes. I'm going to tell you this stuff. And we got over that hump as an as a audience and a performer together. 
and then the show got really good reviews. It was full. So, so it's how much of that one. stuff translates to your corporate work? Because it's all well and good to stand on a stage in an audience where people choose to come to yeah. you. They choose to part with their money to come and be told uncomfortable truths. Mm. When you try and translate that into the corporate world, which is a large part of what you do, yeah. that sort of sounds as if it could be something of a lead balloon sometimes. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, Peter Dirkes also told me, told me a lot of things. Um, I listened to him. Uh, he said that I should use the money I earn in the corporate world to fund my terrorist activities, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> I loved that. And I live by that. So there's a different level of uh, objective in a, in a corporate gig. I think you'd, you'd be erring if you thought that you could go and lecture people who, as you say, didn't elect to hear what you have to say. You're just, they're just there and you're just there. When they pay you, I go to the brief. I listen about you know what it is they want to achieve at this event and I understand the product or the service. And then I write it around them. And I, I'm, not, I'm not there to make, you know, I always have this saying with corporate gigs, I don't like getting letters. I really don't like getting letters. If you want to give me a death threat on a personal show, that's absolutely cool, man. That's fine. But if it's like, you know, for a brand, I don't want them getting letters. I don't want letters. I just want to get the check. I just want everyone to have a great time. I want to use that money to invest in my other activities. And so, so I know how to draw that line. I was thinking about it the other day. I've been doing corporate gigs for 25 years. It's a long time. So on one hand, I'm like this toothless circus lion. And on the other hand, you know, I like to tear someone's liver out while they're sitting in the front row. How do you stay relevant? Because that is one of the greatest challenges in anybody's professional life is the relevance argument. The vast majority of people in the corporate world are being turfed out on the ear at yep. the relatively young age of 60 yep. um, and feel that they're relevant, but have lost the relevance to the organization they serve. You serve multiple organizations over multiple decades, yep. yet remain I hate the word popular, sought after. There's sure, a better word. Sure. Um, how do you maintain that relevance? Um, so there's a couple of things. The one is that I'm a naturally incredibly curious person. Like I don't really believe comedy is the um, – comedy is not my, my primary driver. I don't want to be funny. I want, I want to keep being curious. So I'm constantly learning stuff. It's a big thing for me. So like I'm studying now. Um, I was studying beforehand. I just didn't realize it um, constantly. Um, I, my new show is called A Brain Dump. It's all about the nature of the human mind. I needed a topic I could go and really dive into after the racism one. Um, I have a third show, which I'm planning, which is all about the, the formation of co the conscience. Um, and I've None of this sounds, forgive me, yes. particularly hilarious. Yes. Well, that's my challenge is yeah. take an unfunny topic and then somehow make it funny. Right. So I almost gave up on the good racist. I, I, I almost canceled the show because I've got to that exact point thinking this isn't funny. It's just a very sad lecture. Um, and then I was told that like you've committed. My manager was quite uh, good at that point and, and forced. And then I found the funny. So I think that's the one thing. And the other thing is to also be self-aware. So, so I am, um, I don't want to be doing comedy after a certain age. I would rather not do comedy than be irrelevant as a comic. And I don't think that like after 50, 55, a white male in South Africa has a genuine voice. I just don't in the future of the country. There will be white voices, but they need to be younger. I have a daughter who's going to be 17 next month and we check in a lot because she lives with me. And, um, <laughs> and I'm very aware of um, the fact that my failure to understand the youth is not a function of the youth being dysfunctional. It's the fact that I am becoming, I'm still an iPad one. The iPad five is rolling out. So, so, that's the actual problem, you know. Um, I always thought, you know, Taylor Swift was the idiot. It turns out I might be. So, so, 
So I'm going to probably kill my own career as a comic at a certain date. I'm going to hit a button and just stop it. But, but you're the chief executive, if you like. You are. I mean, mm. you're, you're the ultimate outside insider, as I suggested earlier. You've actually created a business around yep. connections. Yes, absolutely. And creating those opportunities for people to relate better than before they walked into the room. Yeah. And that's powerful. Well, you know, when I started, there was no industry, so we had to build an industry. So that was the first thing we had to do was build a comedy industry. Uh, then I realized that um, out of that, we could manage other talents. So we started a comedy agency. And I say we because there's always a team. But everything I've done is a function of we needed to make, as you call it, a solution. Because there wasn't an industry, there wasn't a a mechanism to manage talent. So we built a talent agency and then out of that came the production company because we needed to put those comedians on stages and that needed sponsorship and that needed, you know, um, equipment. And that. so that happened. And, uh, and then uh, we needed to scale. So we found other businesses. There's one in Durban called On Fire that I bought into uh, a year and a half ago. They've got a festival. So now we have a festival over December, which is a summertime where we connected to the Gateway Shopping Center, which is the biggest retail footprint in that part of the world over that time. Sees a million um people so we connected with them so we have all that advertising space um we've got the hotels lined up and now we're starting to make connections in other parts of of the world and to bring those people to durban so this is all a thing of we needed to make this thing around us and and um the people that started in my kind of uh, like decade the 90s we there was nothing so now we have the comedy awards which we've been running for nine years the talent booking agency the production company um we, we had to grow it all from scratch have you become a conformist? I, I see the tattoos. I see the woody, the woody beard and the yes. big earrings and the big jewelry. Yes. Have you become a conformist? Pretty, uh, yeah, I think I've definitely found with maturity, there's a brilliant, you can be a non-conformist, but if you're a non-conformist with some structure, you'd be deadly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm doing an MBA. Oh, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. You're doing an MBA. Yeah, I'm in my second year now. You know how I know that you're doing an MBA? I've just told you. You did, didn't you? <laughs> yes. I only say it because it sounds unlikely coming from me. <laughs> but here's the guy who gets expelled from school, has to go to a cram college, who then goes and does a diploma. A brochure uh, in drama. A brochure in drama. <laughs> you're a fundamental square peg in a round hole. Yes. Yet you have found a mechanism to fit into an environment which 25 years ago you would never have dreamt of penetrating. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And i also grown up to realize that there is a circle. You do come full circle. I do like the spreadsheets. They give me comfort sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but I have people who help me with that stuff. And um, it's a bit of a more mature approach. I think as you get older, you realize things like sustainability. Like there, are, there are some important things. Money, the rules of money don't really change. Um, you can learn them. And the earlier you do, the better. But, um, but you can still be mad. And you can take some mad risks. And you can do some crazy things. I mean, I still get death threats. And just come back from you know, two weeks of just doing straight stand-up comedy in Australia. It's a mixture. You know, to say absolute, that's a problem. To, to call things absolutes is a big problem. You are global. I mean, you've performed in eight different countries. You've performed in venerable comedy institutions like the Hammersmith Apollo. You've sure. performed in the Royal, Royal Albert, Albert Hall. Hall. I know. Darling. You can't mean, say just Royal Albert Hall. You've got to say Royal Albert Hall. Darling. Darling. I mean, I that's the ultimate that. establishment venue. Uh, absolutely, it is. But when you see the kind of reprobates that have filled those stages, uh, um, it's, it's really beautiful to see <laughs> the kind of, if you look at the riffraff that's been backstage and, and the sort of gentrification of the, of the front of that room, <laughs> it's uh, quite a nice is mix. Is there graffiti backstage in the Royal Albert You know, it's actually the most sedate backstage. They have this tiny little kiosk where you can get a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, 
you, you like limited theatery backstage things. And what's really funny is on the day before we pl- uh, performed there, Mark Banks and I went to have a look. And the lady said, it's 14 pounds for the tour. And we said, well, we're just actually performing here tomorrow. She said, it's 14 pounds for the tour. I said, no, but I'm on the poster. She said, as I've told you twice now, it's 14 pounds <laughs> for the tour. <laughs> so we took the 14 pound tour, uh, even though we were on the poster for the next night. So yeah, uh, even there, uh, it, it has some structure, but then there's madness backstage. Madness is important. I think it's so important, man. Look at Steinhoff. Um, um, <laughs> how do you get to those levels? 200 racehorses. Who is this dude? Nero. It's crazy. <laughs> For people who are frightened of their own madness, what do you say to them? How do you challenge madness out of people? Um, so, you know, it's, that's an excellent question. And, and I was talking at length about this yesterday. There's an enormous amount of damage done by this Calvinist upbringing we all sprung from, which teaches us a few things. One is that um, the devil makes work for idle hands. It's such a bad thing to teach children. And, and the other one is that you must run away from your dark nature, which, which is why I think most Western religions fail, in, in my eyes, uh, hugely. Um, um, and Eastern philosophies seem to offer human beings more. And I think it's got to do with their age, their ancient um, texts and stuff. So they've factored in human um, you must embrace your dark side. It's so important and acknowledge it all the time. Um, you know, you've mentioned all the things I did. You failed to mention the inordinate quantity of drugs and alcohol I forced into my body um, um, during my mad years. And I had to that wasn't part of your CV. You, you no, I leave that out. Um, yeah. Massive cocaine addiction. Um, um, it's just controversial. But but I also did that. So Let's mm. explore that for a moment sure. because it is important. There are people who, who, who dress not. in suits who do that oh, too yes. um, and simply keep it under wraps a little sure. bit better and will never admit to it. Absolutely. I did a lot of blow with a lot of really well-known business people in this country. Was it an important part of your development? Is it something that you now regret? Right. So it's such a good question because I, I don't really know if that was a driver in some way and what makes me an addict could be really useful. I have a friend who's a very wealthy venture capitalist. He said if it wasn't for rehab, he wouldn't have found half of the ventures that he managed to get into in the partners. Um, um, uh, there are elements of addiction that are useful. There's a high level of planning uh, under chaotic conditions. Um, there's the ability to kind of think that you're managing multiple things at once to a degree and then it all falls apart. Um, on the other hand, I could have probably been a more present and useful dad earlier on. So that's a source of shame uh, that I'll carry with me. However, we have a good relationship now and it's been quite a long time. So, I mean, I, I have a, a mixed view. You know, Blake said that the, 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 the road of excess leads to palace of wisdom. Um, not always. Sometimes it leads to like a dead body mm. so, so, or, or a failed family or, you know, hurt things or lost life. So I'm not sure, but uh, I'm fairly grateful that I've survived and that I carry with me that kind of madness because I also now have quite a lot of endurance in the business side of things because I, I, c- I have taken quite a lot of punishment, as I'm sure any entrepreneur will tell you, is that you, what did the boxing guy say? Like, if you don't like getting hit in the face, you shouldn't do boxing because mm. at some point you are going to get hit in the face. So you can't go on the basis that you'll never get hit in the face. Um, and I have been hit in the face a lot. So... I'm grateful for that background, uh, but more so than that, grateful for having come out of it. How do you satisfy that addictive nature? I mean, the comedy probably does that. So there's an element of that. There's an element of um, putting yourself in kind of stressful situations, which comedy certainly does, especially when you travel. And uh, that's another way to stay relevant is going to other countries and performing there. Um, I did get into quite a bad habit of spending money. Shopping became an addiction for me for a while. But um, as I've got to understand my balance sheets better, I've, I've pulled back on that. Um, so uh, th- I think that I definitely have I- an impulse 
thing going on. I exercise quite a lot now. Um, it's not a happy thing. I, I'm not thrilled to get running on the road or swimming, but I do try and force myself into that. If I feel that kind of, you, you can definitely run those urges away or, or swim them out. I'm grateful to have the kind of impulsive, probably quite an aggressive streak. I'm quite aggressive when it comes to getting the deal. Um, I've been known to get in a plane and go down to someone who's turned me down and like get in their face and go, dude, what is going on here? And I'm amazed how many times that's actually swung the deal because um, <laughs> you have to close the deal. So uh, it, it's a tricky one, but I would probably say that I lean on comedy more and more for that adrenaline. When you go back to that day at the headmaster's office, you were 16 mm. years old, yep. you're Durban High School, venerable old yep. school modeled on the British public schooling system. And the headmaster says to you, Flismas, either you go or we push you. What do you say to that kid? It's quite a good question. I, I, would, I would probably say to him, take the deal, kid. Um, <laughs> you don't need these people. He's going to die. And all of these prefects are one day going to sell insurance. It's quite difficult because those anxieties I had as a kid, I genuinely believe put me into a forge. And that forge was necessary. So I'm quite like, I'm not the kind of guy I would go back in time to try and change the course of history. Because would I have the kid that I have? Would I have, you know, would I have the, the opportunities I've had? You know, I mean, I had some crazy, I've been sitting in a room with Jerry Springer and like write him a joke. And he's like, I don't like that joke. Write another one. And I'm like, I'll just go. And he's like, no, dude, you're a writer. Write me a new joke. And I have to write a joke with Jerry Springer's eyes bearing into my forehead on my <laughs> in a hotel room. I mean, it's pretty mad. So I would just tell the kid just to get on with it. Just go get on with your life. You know, just that whole value system was wrong. What does it mean? You know, what does it mean where you got matric unless you're entering some kind of old boys club that's going to cover up a scandal for you or finance your next arms deal? I don't know. I don't know. John Flismas, who's made a life out of finding solutions and making connections in extraordinary ways. John Flismas, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bruce. R&B presents Solutionist Thinking with Bruce Woodfield. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za. R&B Solutionist Thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.